0: Good morning, God is good, all the time. and all the time, God is good, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Do you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you today asking for your presence and your preeminence and your power as you walk through this text with you. We pray, Lord, you give us insight and that your Holy Spirit would have your way with us, and that we could leave here knowing that we've been touched by you. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, history tells us that in the 16th century, Jesuit missionaries were sent to China to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and then establish Christian schools and mission churches throughout the country. As they went to work, they were surprised and struck by the Chinese people's reaction to the pictures that they brought with them. The Chinese embraced and loved the paintings of the Virgin Mary holding the Christ child, but they were horrifically repulsed and refused to look at the pictures of the crucifixion of Jesus. But That's also true for us. Today, we do not associate Jesus' birth with Jesus' crucifixion. Evergreen wreaths and presents under decorated trees and joyous songs of love and goodwill, eggnog and cookies and massive meals with families purge any hint of the story of Bethlehem is the path ultimately to the cross. The truth is the world that Jesus was born into was not in a very festive mood. Luke's Gospel tells us of one person who seemed to understand the true meaning of what our Lord's birth birth meant. In Luke 2, we read of a man named Simeon who prayed a blessing on Jesus and on Mary and on Joseph, and then he told them, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will peace, pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many may be revealed. Jesus' birth came at a time of deep suffering, at a time of painful struggle, not only for the people of God, but for pretty much the the known world at that time. The iron hand of the Roman rule, which reached every corner of the known world, was ruthless and bloodthirsty. Herod the Great King over the people in Palestine had by his own hand personally killed his wife two of his sons and two of his brothers-in-law. 5 days before his death King Herod ordered the arrest of all of his friends of all of his family and of all of the powerful citizens in the country and decreed that every one of them should be executed on the day of his death in order to guarantee the proper atmosphere of mourning the loss of him. The story is well known that when Jesus was born, King Herod had all the children in Bethlehem, two years old and under, executed in order to assure no Messiah would raise up during his reign. The first Christmas, the birth of Christ, came in the midst of mothers weeping in despair over murdered children and floods of baby blood. Life in those days was one of great oppression, fear, and suffering. Executions, murder, torture, suffering, and pain were everyday occurrence in the Roman world. In the midst of such strife and terror, the Bible tells us Jesus' parents were warned by an angel to leave, and they did. They escaped to a foreign country. Our Savior spent his infancy hidden in Egypt as a refugee. Later, his family returned to their homeland, but not to the place of his birth. Instead, they settled into northern Judea, the region of Galilee, where the blood flowed much less. A few years later, as an adult, Jesus returns to Judea, where the arrogant religious leadership of the day collaborated with the ruthless Pontius Pilate, and Hare's grandson, to finally, to finally execute Jesus Christ. His painful, torturous death on a cross outside Jerusalem seemed just as appropriate on that day as it did on the day of his birth. Business as usual, in a world filled with blood, pain, and death. It's easy to miss that reality of the birth of Christ in the midst of warm feelings of tradition, of sentiment, of Christmas cards, and Christmas carols, and Christmas presents. Yes, we do look at the facts uh, of the birth of Jesus, but we do in a way which is pretty clean. We usually just read Matthew and Luke, and they're pretty much without blood and pain in those texts. But there is a factual account of the first Christmas in the Bible, written by one person on the earth that knew Jesus better than anyone else. And that's the Apostle John. The Apostle John was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved because of the great and deep intimate relationship he had with Jesus. Now John's story of the birth of Christ is not from the same viewpoint of the Gospels. In fact, it's not even in the Gospels. It's in the book that we know of as Revelation. A revelation given to the John the Apostle by Jesus many years after most of the Bible had been put together. We read John's account in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to that section and we'll begin after a few more comments to step right in. Now, the book of Revelation is a strange book to most of us. There are countless interpretations and opinions in our day about what Revelation is and what it means. In order to guard ourselves against spiritual laziness and personal pride, we must face the fact that there are very few people who truly and deeply understand what the book of Revelation is all about. One of those people would be the Apostle John, who wrote that book. John was highly educated uh, as a first-century Jew. He knew much of what uh, deep knowledge of the books of Daniel and Ezekiel. He was, in a sense, a scholar in many ways. He also knew Jesus is closer than anyone else. Uh, John also was the one who watched Jesus die on a cross. John also watched the Romans destroy Jerusalem 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. After that time, Jesus appeared to John and shared with him the words of Revelation. He was doing so as John was watching the church go through a period of great terror and persecution at the hands of the very same oppressive Romans. And that's who John was writing to in this book. He was writing to the first century churches that were going through horrific persecution. They would understand all the words of this book. They knew what John was speaking of. They understood the meanings and the symbolism and the implications of everything that's written. Today, we sit 2,000 years away from their situation. None of us here is a trained Jewish scholar. None of us has lived in the flesh and blood with close to Jesus like this. We're not not going through times of great suffering, of bloodletting and pain for our faith. Our purpose this morning is not to address the interpretive controversies in the book. Almost all the theories have a semblance of truth. And while there is an end times reality to the book of Revelation, there's a deeper truth here that the Apostle John sends to us in his words. Jesus appeared to John in the writing of these words in order to exhort and encourage those who were suffering and being put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John expressed that message in the context of his knowledge and his love of the prophetic words of the Old Testament. The message of the book of Revelation is, if you are truly following Jesus, you will suffer for Jesus. Amen? Pretty quiet. For those of us who choose to follow Jesus, the end times is right now. If you're really following Jesus, the end times is right now. Because when we truly do deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow Jesus, we will painfully rub against the grain of the fallen world that we live into. The theme of the book of Revelation is worship. Is worship. In times of trial and pain and persecution, we should, what, run or hide? No, we should worship God. The blood of the risen Christ gives us victory, even in the worst of times in our lives. Over and over throughout the book of Revelation, we read of worship over and over and over. Our God is worthy. The Lamb has been slain. By the power of the living God, he has risen and defeated evil, sin, and death forever. Praise be, and glory be, to the name of Jesus Christ." Without getting into the, the kind of fine, minute details of the book of Revelation, we need to take a step back so we can understand it better and know that there are two truths we must accept regardless of our viewpoints. Number one is some things in this book have already happened, Some things are happening now, and some of these things are going to come to pass. Number two, some things in this book can be clearly understood, and some things in this book are way beyond our understanding. So what these two truths mean to us here today is in everyday life, there are two parallel realities occurring at the very same time. There are things that are happening that we can physically see and know, and at the very time there are things happening in the spiritual realm that we cannot see and know. As the physical process of life goes on, there is a spiritual process of life that is also going on in the spiritual realm. And though we can sense and intuitively discern some spiritual realities, rarely do we get more than a smell or a glimpse of what is truly happening in the spiritual realm. Someday, when we get to the glory in heaven, with the cloud of sin away from our hearts, we will see both at the same time. Paul writes of this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. So there are two worlds. One physical, one spiritual. And at this very moment, you and I are sitting in both of them. And this one we can see, and the other one we can't. On the day we die, we will step into the spiritual plane. And we will fully see and fully know the physical and the spiritual. But today, at this very moment, you and I are sighted only with the eyes for this world. Not knowing what's going on beyond. What we are reading in our text for this morning is that when Jesus was physically being born as a baby on earth, the powers that be on this earth were trying to exterminate him. At the very same time, that's happening in the same, for the reason, in the same picture in the spiritual realm. As the forces of evil invaded heaven, in an attempt to destroy the infant Savior as he was being born. Revelation 12.7 tells us that when Jesus was born, war arose in heaven, it said. Yes, the first Christmas was of mangers and wise men and gifts and shepherds, but it was also an event of violence and of war. In our text today, we're going to see what it looks like from heaven what heaven saw when Christmas happened, both here and in the spiritual realm. So as we sit, step into Revelation 12, we do so in the context of Revelation 11, which tells us of the horrific violence and deadly destruction of the wrath of Satan during the Great Tribulation. This is what's happening right before Revelation 12, the Great Tribulation, where the wrath of Satan goes uh, towards everyone. Uh, The chapter ends with the transition from the wrath of Satan and that everyone will experience to the beginning of the wrath of God, which we will not experience if you're a born-again Christian. So there's this transition that's happening right here. Um, We read of the beginning of the transition from the wrath of Satan to the wrath of God in Revelation 11, 15 through 19. I'll read that and then we'll go from there. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for the, for, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail." This is the transition. And then in Revelation 12, verses 1 and 2, we see this, "...and a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth." So the word, the original word in the language for great sign here is the same word that we normally uh, translate to be miracle. So the great sign which opens this chapter is the miracle of the incarnation, the virgin birth, birth of Christ. The woman who was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth would then be, of course, for us, Mary, Jesus' mother. This miracle of birth of Jesus as seen in the physical world. But in the spiritual realm, the great sign spoken of here is the miracle of the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. The long-awaited divine promise that God would come to the earth and rescue his people in the spiritual realm, the woman crying out with birth pains and agony and giving birth is the church. Is the church in the spiritual realm. So John is speaking here, remember, uh, like a Jew, saying that Jesus is born out of the bride of God, the Israel, the chosen people of Jehovah. This is the church, though, the church, God's people, who were pregnant with the promise of a hope that would be born to them. John was writing to the church that was in the midst of its greatest persecution. The woman, the church, was crying out in pain, in suffering, struggling with living for the living God in a world that's fallen and full of death. In verse 3 and 4 we read, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head's seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it." The word dragon here is rendered from the Greek word, which means a large serpent. Uh, Basically, of course, that's a term that we use for the devil, for Satan. In earthly historical physical terms, the first century church here was going through this horrendous persecution. And the church of that day would clearly understand the dragon was not the devil, but the Roman oppressors of their day, those who in Rome were putting them to death. But in spiritual terms, the dragon we know is Satan himself, who shows up in heaven and captures and casts down a third of the angels from heaven onto the earth for demonic activity and for war. The dragon then stands before the woman waiting to devour, to destroy, the woman's child soon to be born. In earthly terms now, we see a clear picture in reference to Matthew 2.16, when we read that Herod was killed, all these young two-year-olds at the time. In spiritual terms, it's a, a reference to the satanic opposition that Israel has been fighting through all the years as they waited for the Messiah. And in physical terms, it's a reference to the brutal, violent opposition from the Romans that the church was experiencing at that time. In verse 5, we read that she she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a wrought iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. These words reflect the words out of Psalm 2, verses 9 through 12, which says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The ruler spoken of here in Psalm 2 and in Revelation 5 is King Jesus, born out of the chosen people of God, the Savior, the Deliverer, the King of Kings, who came to rescue and to redeem and to rule forever. But notice here, there's no stables. There's no wise men, there's no shepherds, there's no star of Bethlehem no angels singing, no gold and frankincense and myrrh, but also no disciples, no miracles, no healing. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God into his throne. Now, it's highly significant that the Apostle John goes right from the birth of Christ to his resurrection. There's no, no cross or anything. It's significant. Why? Well, much of the focus of our faith is on the physical aspect of what Jesus did, what Jesus said while he was on earth, during, during his life. Specifically, uh, his teachings. In the spiritual realm, those things have no meaning. John goes right from Jesus' birth to his resurrection because the ultimate purpose of Jesus' birth was the resurrection the, after this crucifixion, resurrection from the dead. That's the ultimate, ultimate message here. The reason Christ came into the world was not to celebrate Christmas. The reason that Jesus was born and came into this world, he, he did so so that he could restore us back to God in the relationship we were created for by dying on a cross for our sins, in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin, and to forever uh, defeat death through the power of the Resurrection. Without the Resurrection, Jesus' birth means nothing. This is the Christmas story that's being seen from heaven. First, the birth of the Savior, the male child who would rule the world with an iron scepter, who then immediately, as was born, would be put right up on the throne immediately. That's what they saw. When it comes to Christmas, nothing else matters than the resurrection. In verse 6 we read, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. The Bible tells us, uh, right after Jesus' birth, that his parents went to the Egyptian desert into the wilderness to protect Jesus from the brutal hand of Herod. This is the physical reality of the Christmas story. Spiritually, we have a picture here that only John could see. In 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, the Romans would literally destroy and level the city of Jerusalem. Fed up with the constant resistance from the Jews, the bloodthirsty Romans sought to completely exterminate them as a people. Those who survived, God's people, the church, the woman spoken of here, did so by running and hiding in the desert wilderness for many generations. In fact, you could even say Israel still does that today. In verse 7, now war The Civil War Union General, William Sherman, has famously been quoted as saying, War is hell. The day of our Savior's birth, war arose in heaven, which was a war between heaven and hell. We see that in that the angel Gabriel, who proclaimed the birth of Christ, is nowhere to be found. Jewish Christian tradition is that Gabriel is the angel of peace. Now we see Michael, the angel of war, the battle warrior of God who shows up defeating the dragon Satan and his demons by casting them down to the earth. This is the Christmas story, a story of an illegitimate baby who was born in a dirty stable 2,000 years ago to do battle to the darkest of evil from hell. On the night of of our Savior's birth, the leader of evil and death gathered his forces to storm the gates of heaven for the greatest and deadliest of all wars, which is the life and death battle for the souls of fallen humanity. At the birth of the Savior, the final battle began. Jesus was born in the midst of the cries of dying babies, babies who had been drawn through with the sword, the sound of grieving mothers whose sons had been put to death by her Herod, the voices of men gasping for their last breath as they die on a cross. and At the very same same time, souls are being fought for and won and redeemed and restored. God's Word tells us that by the power of the risen Christ, the war was won. But we also read of the red dragon and his evil angels who were hurled down to the world to continue that battle. So the war in heaven is done. Amen. But the battle continues, even now, in this earth, both in us and all around us. The victory at Calvary, we know, is the victory we have in heaven. Yes, the war has been won, but the battle will rage on. Friends, for as long as you and I walk this earth, And until Jesus returns, sin and evil will still be alive and well and fighting us for every inch of our life. The great dragon he's spoken of here is the Old Testament, the adversary, the enemy, who we know as in the New Testament is the slanderer, the accuser, Satan himself. In his war against God, Satan uses people. He never comes straight at us. He will use us. He did so in the Garden of Eden. He does it today. It says here that he is one who deceives the whole world. The devil's the one who planted betrayal in Judas's mind. The one who talked Peter into denying Christ. The one who persuaded Ananias to lie. The devil would do whatever he can do to get us to betray and to deny. And make no mistake, once we think that we've outsmarted him, he's got us. The dragon himself personally tried to seduce Jesus. He will do the same to us. The devil knows the word of God better than we do. He devil knows us better than we know ourselves. And if you believe that, or if you don't believe that, you're hooped. None of us is immune to the power of sin and evil. Now we step into our main text Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was Given the two wings of the great eagle, so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she to be nourish, nourished for a time in times in half a time, the serpent poured water like river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came back to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious. With the woman and went off and to make war to the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The war in heaven is over. Jesus is risen. The devil is defeated. But for those of us who still are here, who seek to live for Jesus, who are trying to follow Jesus, the battle will continue. Yes, the war is over, but it is still here. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Followers of Jesus Christ live in two parallel worlds. One dark night about 2,000 years ago, those two worlds came together. A baby was born, and swords were drawn. And when an infant cried out on earth, a warrior shouted a battle cry from heaven. By the birth of a child, a war broke out throughout the universe. Immediately, the baby was snatched up and placed on the throne of God to rule forever and ever. And as we stand on the great battlefield of this life, we who claim Jesus, and trust Jesus, and follow Jesus, and live for Jesus, we will experience opposition, hostility, and conflict from within, from without. But we can and we will persevere because we have victory in the risen Jesus Christ in our souls. Amen. A mother tells a story of how she went Christmas shopping with her two children. She spent several hours looking at row after row after row of toys, and just about everything else imaginable. After countless cries from her children, asking for everything they saw on the shelves, she was exasperated and made her way to an elevator. When the elevator door opened, there was already a crowd inside. She pushed her way in and dragged her two kids and all of her gifts loaded with her two. When the door closed, she couldn't take it anymore, and she shouted, Whoever started this whole Christmas thing should be strung up and shot. And from the back of the elevator, a voice said, That already happened to Jesus in Calvary. The Apostle Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, we, we bless you for a glimpse of what goes on in the heavens and knowing, Lord, there are, all these things are around us and in us, and we only get to see these things partially. But I pray that even today the things that we've looked at would help us to know even more uh, the war that is going around us, but also the great victory we have uh, beyond us, but also the peace and strength we can have in the midst of the battle of life. So we bless you and praise you for the days ahead. We look forward to the next year and see, Lord, where you can take us and what you will do with us. And we pray that you would do it for our joy and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.